I get a lot of people asking me how to pose. So I've given you all the tips on how to take a great selfie. Now what do you do with your face? And of course your hands. You should know how to take a bomb photo. I may seem like an expert, but I practice a few hours, maybe a few hundred hours. This is the beauty blogger Huda Katan in a video she posted to YouTube about how to take a selfie. Next, side eye. You know when you're just looking off in the distance to nothing, but you look really sexy doing it? That's called side eye. Huda has launched her own beauty products line, Huda Beauty. She has 18 million followers on Instagram and even her own set of emojis called Huda Emoji. These are little images of Huda's face making different expressions you can download and text to your friends. This is an extreme form of self-imaging for sure. But there's no doubt that the combination of camera phones and social media has ushered in the age of the selfie. Can you guys help me pick a filter? I don't know if I should go with XX Pro or Valencia. I want to look tan. What should my caption be? I want it to be clever. How about living with my bitches, hashtag live. I only got 10 likes in the last five minutes. Do you think I should take it down? Let me take another selfie. You might love selfies or you might hate them. Either way, it's worth pausing to think. What does their popularity say about our modern society? To get at that question, let's do an archaeological dig of sorts. Is it possible to find the first selfie? According to The Guardian, selfies, or at least post-tagged hashtag selfie, go back to about 2004 on Flickr with the invention of the digital camera. But some claim that the first selfie was taken in 1839 on a daguerreotype camera by a man in Philadelphia named Robert Cornelius. Cornelius was an amateur chemist and photography enthusiast. He took the image by removing the lens cap and then running into frame where he sat for a minute before covering up the lens again. The amazing thing about the image is how modern his expression looks. I have a feeling Cornelius would have loved Instagram. But the selfie arguably predates the camera and can be found throughout the history of Western art. You see the selfie in... Da Vinci, and you see it in Rembrandt, and you see it in Van Gogh and in Andy Warhol. That is, maybe they don't extend one of their arms and turn the camera onto themselves, but the the attempt at making a self-portrait or a self-representation of who we are in pictorial fashion is old. That's Ilan Stavans professor of Latin American and Latino culture and humanities at Amherst College. One of the questions that I ask myself is to what extent, because we are so enthralled by the selfie, are we more narcissistic than anybody who has come before? Have our natures changed with the invention of the camera phone and social media? Or have we just made new tools to express our innate tendency toward narcissism? This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the way big ideas shape our lives. I'm Zachary Davis. Today on the podcast, we investigate the selfie and self-image. It's hard to imagine now, but there was a time when most people lived their whole lives without really knowing what they looked like. Ian Mortimer is a historian who has written about the invention of mirrors in medieval Europe. You can't get a good idea of what you look like in a muddy puddle of water. And you can't actually get a very good idea of what you look like in a polished bronze mirror. Polished bronze mirrors reflect about 20% of the light. So it's really only in silver you get a clear vision of yourself in the early and high Middle Ages. This is before the 1200s. He explains that for centuries, only very wealthy people had access to those silver mirrors. Most people had very little idea of what they looked like. 
and Mortimer says they hardly had time to care. They were just busy trying to survive. And survival meant being part of a community. People did practically everything as a group. So a lot of the farming they did, they did it in communal, uh, in, in groups on the communal manor. And therefore the draft animals were held in common and used in common. The commons were there for the grazing of animals. So much was done in common. They went into church together. They, they partitioned the meadows together. They did the harvest together. They had the same times for going through the whole ceremony. It was a, a ritual year of plowing, of praying, and you name it. Medieval people spent much less time thinking about their own individual identities. And you can find a reflection of that in the art of the time. You don't have self-portraits. In fact, you don't really have portraiture at all at that early period. You have representations of people, but they're not uh, to look like that individual. They are representative kings or bishops, etc. So the idea of portraiture and self-portraiture hasn't really evolved at this time. Eventually, the technology for making mirrors improved. The first glass uh, silver-backed mirrors are developed around the year 1300. At that point, they're still very expensive, but gradually they become more common. Um, by the end of 1300s, English lords may well have one. Uh, we know, for example, that Henry IV, the future Henry IV, uh, when he was still a young man, Earl of Derby, he had glass mirrors. And we know this because his accounts mention him breaking one, him having the glass repaired in his mirror. So aristocrats uh, have mirrors, glass mirrors, and a good image of themselves by the end of the 14th century. But then the ordinary person over the course of the 15th and 16th centuries is able to acquire mirrors. So that on the Mary Rose, the ship that sank off the south coast of England in the 15, uh, 1540s, uh, the sailors on board could have a small shaving mirror, for example. Uh, the ordinary person has seen themselves and recognized themselves as glass mirrors became more widely available, visual arts began to change. Paintings are no longer confined to idealized versions of saints or nobility. Instead, artists began creating much more realistic depictions of individuals. And the mirror even lets artists begin to paint themselves. Arguably, by 1443, you've got the, the first self-portrait by Van Eyck. By then, you have this artistic uh, uh, instinct to, to inquire visually what is going on. So there is this greater inquiry into what the human condition is. Uh, the mirror, in many ways, and self-portraiture are just visual manifestations in a changed way of thinking. This change wasn't just limited to visual art. This growing fascination with the self led to new forms of literature, too. In the 15th century, the personal diary starts to emerge. And soon after, a strange new art form called the novel. Here's Ilan Stevans again. I love Don Quixote, and it is also described as the very first modern novel in that it attempts to come as close as possible in representing what we see as our interior life. When you were a boy, Sancho Panza, didn't you dream of something better than chopping wood? Your life may change, Sancho. What would you say to a great journey? We'll mark it there, La Mancha. That's far enough for me. Oh, friend Sancho, neighbor Panza, you may not have realized this yet. It may not have entered your sadly limited experience, mm. but I have to tell you, there is a world outside La Mancha. Mm. 
There is a great elsewhere, my neighbor. And there, we may both find fame and fortune. The novel was written in 1605 and is often considered the most influential work of literature in history. It has the friendship of uh, a, a slim and tall and idealistic man with a short and somewhat obese and materialistic man, Don Quixote and Sancho. It tries to uh, open a window to enable us as readers to understand their subjectivity, the, the alternative views that they have, imaginary and uh, psychological and, and spiritual. And that is, I think, one of the astonishing capacities that the novel as a literary genre has, the, the, the possibility of not only describing a human being as the rest, but of entering the, that character's life uh, internally, privately, and in understanding the contradictions and the challenges and the quests that that individual experiences. This novel, in that sense, is the mirror of mirrors. As books begin creating flawed and complete pictures of individuals, another trend begins to emerge in portraiture, the kind of representations that tell stories. Here's Ian Mortimer. So what begins as a sense of uh, the self, uh, a representation, a sense of self, a wanting to be seen, a wanting to be acknowledged, a wanting to live on, you could call it that too, then becomes uh, more diverse and becomes a way of talking about other selves too. By the early 16th century, yes, there's very much that, that sense of stressing power and status through portraiture. Rich people began hiring artists to paint them not as they really were, but as they wanted to appear. The Dutch painter Johannes Vermeer was one artist who learned he could make a very comfortable living off of commissioned portraits by a newly wealthy merchant class. Peter von Rieven was one of his most consistent patrons. Here's von Rieven depicted in the movie The Girl with a Pearl Earring, inspecting a painting of his wife he commissioned from Vermeer. This is good. The color, perspective is true, the illusion is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All this skill lavished on my dear Emily. Portraits no longer had to be an exact representation, with all flaws and blemishes. It could be the story that you want to tell about yourself. These kinds of portraits might have been created with paint, not pixels, but to me, they sound a whole lot like selfies. Here's Elon Stavans again. It is also that a self-portrait will take um, hours, days, maybe months or years to be made. The selfie uh, is not done in a unit, but it's done often in packs. We take five or 10 or 15 different uh, photographs of ourselves, and then we doctor them, or we simply select one and eliminate all the others. I don't think that we have become more subjective or more narcissistic, it is that uh, it is just that we have that uh, outlet, that window to express that uh, aspect of ourselves. When it comes to young women's engagement with the selfie, there are many aspects at play, which narcissism is just one. This is Mary McGill, a researcher at the Centre for Global Women's Studies in Galway, Ireland. As part of her 2016 TED Talk, she showed on a big screen behind her several selfies of young women. These 
very smiley, happy pictures <laughs> are selfies posted by young Turkish women in 2014. And these are four of thousands. They were uploaded in response to remarks made by the deputy Turkish prime minister who called on women to be chaste and not laugh in public. In defiance, tens of thousands of Turkish women went on social media and posted selfies of themselves laughing. Their photos quickly went viral and received global news coverage. I think it's fair to say that his remarks didn't have the desired effect and that the joke was very much on him. And I don't know about you, but I love the idea of laughing as a radical act. And so, dismissing young women's engagement with the selfie then is not just intellectually lazy. It denies the myriad of ways that young women have used the phenomenon with political intent to speak back to power, to give themselves communities and role models where there are none, striving for visibility in a world where female representation remains, unfortunately, very much a work in progress. And this is particularly true for women in minorities. Unexpectedly, we're seeing that something as seemingly frivolous and ephemeral as the selfie can be a tool for individuals and groups to subvert social power dynamics, to in fact be a political act. Many Black women, for example, share selfies as a way to challenge European standards of beauty. Mothers share breastfeeding selfies as a way to decrease the stigma of feeding babies in public. These and other examples show how the selfie allows people to take control of their own representation, offer alternative narratives, and build greater self-understanding and community. So the next time you see a selfie, keep in mind that there just might be more there than meets the eye. Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Pub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a Hub & Spoke show called The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one painting at a time. The show is hosted by a brilliant art historian named Tamar Avisha, and she's able to do the seemingly impossible, make art history exciting and relevant. A really great episode is about Richard Serra's giant metal sculptures, these are the kinds of artworks that I used to tend to dismiss as being inaccessible and kind of boring. But Tamar shows how they are driven by fascinating and important ideas. Check it out at thelonelypalette.com.